Greetings, troubled listeners, and welcome to the Troubled Men podcast. I am Renee Komen, sitting in an undisclosed location for a very special Troubled Men podcast, uh, Alex Chilton birthday version. So uh, sitting with me, I have uh, Doug Garrison, his drummer of many years from uh, West Memphis, Arkansas, by way of Memphis, uh, now residing in New Orleans. And I have uh, Jay Beninati, Johnny Jay, uh, guitar player, leader of the uh, Johnny Jay and the Hitmen band, and uh, formerly of the Blue Vipers, uh, resident of New Orleans, both uh, friends and associates of Alex's. So yeah, with today's Alex's birthday, December 28th, we decided to get together and, and uh, you know, just, just air some remembrances of, of Alex. And we're actually in a location that's kind of right in the heart of, of Alexville. You know, it's right down the street from where we, he recorded that, produced that record on you, Jay. That, hey, that, right up the street. Right, the and, Nightshade and Studios. Exactly. It used to be on uh, South Rendon, right? Right, right around the corner Right, here. and then we're right down the street from, or, you know, within a, a mile of uh, Alex's longtime residence in the, uh, above the carriage house of the Tannen Estate. Right. The uh, honeycomb hideout where we spent many uh, days, many evenings hanging out, playing music. This is, that was at, at a time when Alex had come to New Orleans to visit uh, Stanley Adkins, who Stanley, who was a big Cramps fan, had gone up to Memphis and hunted Alex down. And uh, they hung out, and then Stanley had invited Alex to come down to New Orleans. So Alex came down took the train down big mistake visited visited <laughs> stanley um you know i enjoyed the trip i think it, it, the way alex told me the story when he went back to memphis he got off the train and almost immediately had the sensation that oh, okay man i think i just need to go pack my shit up and uh <laughs> go back to new orleans you know it was a time when uh maybe like uh 81 or so i think alex uh felt like he had a uh, a lot of history in Memphis. He wasn't thrilled about uh, continuing. Um, New Orleans seemed like a clean break, and uh, you know he kind of started a, a bit of a rebuilding period. You know, he, he wanted to stop drinking. I think the whole time he was down here, it's funny. People, it's not the first person I've I've seen come to New Orleans to dry out. You know, it's a hell of a thing to do to to, to go on a diet or stop drinking in this place. I don't understand that thinking at all. Well, you know, it, it takes a certain resolve, you know, it's like you feel like if I could do it here, I'm really, I could do it anywhere, really doing it for real. So, you know, that's, that's kind of what he was doing when, I, when he came down here and, and stayed with Stanley and then found an apartment, you know, found work and wasn't really, you know, involved in the music scene here. And then, uh, you know, I, I heard about him. I didn't really know anything about, about Alex or his history. Uh, but I first came into contact with him when he was having a, uh, a going away party for a friend who, whose visa had expired. And he, they needed a bass player who could play with this kind of protege band, Alex, I mean, Stanley and the Undesirables, uh, like kind of, you know, punk rock country band, and could also back up Alex on some of his material and stuff he wanted to do. And so I was called. That's how I came into this orbit. And I remember I was, I was still in music school, but really looking for any way to get out. I was very unhappy. And uh, so I went to this rehearsal, and they said, well, you're going to 
rehearse with the with the the Stanley and the Undesirables first. It was Nicky Sonsenbach on drums, Stanley Adkins on guitar, George Ronicky on guitar, and me. Whoa! And, and 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 what a band! I know it's like some real shrinking violets there. Uh, so so uh, you know I'm uh, I'd come over and and I'm rehearsing with these guys. And I'm I'm having my my professional life flash before my eyes as I'm in this room because it's like two of the three guys had like just scored for Delauded and gotten so high that that they were not like taking turns nodding out during the rehearsal and nobody could tune their guitar. It was a lesson in life on why you shouldn't do narcotics. And I was just going, oh my god, what am I doing here, man? Is this is this where my life is leading? So got through that rehearsal, and I was somewhat dejected. And then Alex showed up, and so then I went in the other room and had just a little one-on-one rehearsal with Alex. And you know, meeting him, he's he was not he was very kind of uh, um, how you say uh, you know he wasn't blustery in any way as you know as Alex often was. He's came on very down to earth, and and uh, you know I think because I didn't have that kind of hero worship of him. And so he starts teaching me these songs, and, and like, unless ahead. he was expecting you to be him to be down to earth, then he would go into the showbiz <laughs> mode. The most important thing was for him was to do what you didn't expect him to do. Sure, he liked he liked to be surprising for sure. Uh, you know, enjoyed uh, you know not meeting people's expectations. <laughs> he got a kick or, out of that. Or setting them on fire. Yes, yes, yes. Um, so then he starts showing me all these songs, and like it was you know. A bunch of different stuff, but a few Michael Jackson songs. You know, he was very into the off the wall record at the time. And uh, I remember we were we were. He's showing me the song, and and he's going, "Oh, here's the chords." And he goes, "I'm not sure what this chord is, but I think it's this." And I'm I'm like playing the bass, and I'm going, mm, "I think it's this." And he goes, "Ooh, you're right. Cool." And so <laughs> I could see right there. He's like, "Oh, his eyes lit up," you know. And then uh, so th- then we came time to do the. When then we had another rehearsal. And I remember about that, he said, yeah, you know, Renee was one of the, the first guys that I'd met in New Orleans where I could teach him a song and, and get together with him the next time. And he actually remembered the song. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so the gig, I didn't actually wind up playing the gig because the, the, the schedule got all screwed up. I had to leave town. I, I think I just left my equipment at the gig and said, yeah, I'll just bring it back to my house when y'all are done. Somebody else sat in. But that was my first meeting with Alex. And then after Tav kind of from the Panther and Tav Falco kind of followed Alex back down to New Orleans and started living here and wanted to re- reconstitute the Panther Burns. Alex said, well, get Renee. So that's how I wound up playing with the Panther Burns. And Can I say something about oh, that? Oh, yes, please. Jump right in. I, I think at the time I was working with Alex at a place called Tupelo's. He was working in there cleaning the place up. Right. You know, and um, I heard that y'all were going on the road, and I go, Alex, you going on the road with Tav? And he goes, yes. He goes, the road to oblivion. <laughs> he knew it like no one. <laughs> huh? He knew that like no one. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah. Speaking from experience. Well, you know, I, I have a, a foundational musical principle that I learned at Tupelo's from Alex when I was rehearsing with Tav. And this was when uh, Tav had, had booked a Panther Burns gig. I guess this is my first Panther Burn gig. It was like May of 90, of 83. And, uh, Tav was there, and Dickinson was flying down, and Ross Johnson was flying down. So it's going to be the whole the whole kit and caboodle with me. And so I'm rehearsing with Tav, and Alex is sweeping up the broken glass at Tupelo from the <laughs> night before. 
as we're doing this. Can, can I say something about that? You can say whatever Alex, you want. Alex was the only person I ever saw that looked dignified mopping a floor. Oh, yeah. He still had an air of, of uh, you know, uh, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I never saw him do that. He had an air of charisma while he the, mopped the floor. Yeah, well, that's the thing. You know, Alex came down here and he, was, he wasn't going to be, uh, you know, he was always operating on his own terms. You know, Alex didn't yeah. give a fuck what anybody thought about his decisions. And that's, that's yeah. a theme that runs through his life. In fact, with our friends... And, and an inspiration for all. Oh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. man. No, I mean, he's, so many things that, that he said or, or did that, you know, I, I think back to, and I, I, for better or worse, I take those as, as a rule of thumb, you know? <laughs> I've, I've based my, a lot of my decisions on those, you know? But, uh, but yeah, he didn't care, like, you, you know, like a song that, that he thought was really cool. He didn't care if everybody else thought it was the most uncool thing ever you know like casey and the sunshine band he genuinely liked that you know a lot of people think oh yeah that was alex was being ironic he was not being ironic you know well you know the thing about him was he had this way of looking at a song he could find you know the certain core part of the song right and 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 re uh characterize it in his own way and that made it a whole new song Yes. So, you know, and, and that's a that's a talent in itself. There are people that write songs and there are people that can re uh, interpret other people's material. And he definitely that was one of his his, you know, I thought, you know, yeah, one of his talents. Gifts, for sure. Yeah. 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 Own it. Yes. Yeah. 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 And, and uh, you know, and, and finding strange cover material that was Tab's department too. Tab used to oh, yeah. unearth stuff out of the vaults too, and they they seem to exchange a few things, you know, oh, here yeah. and there, you know. Oh yeah, they were definitely you know uh, sympathetic in that in that regard, you know, of the mining of 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 uh, past artifacts that others may have discarded <laughs> as as useless, you know. <laughs> and they reanimated them. Yes, reanimated them absolutely. <laughs> um, yeah, so so uh, Alex is sweeping up the glass and. Tav is playing these songs with me, and I'm, I'm trying to to uh, like play twelve bar forms, you know. And Tav's adding beats and dropping beats, like you know, like he does that hill country style, you know, that I was not familiar with. And Alex can see me getting really frustrated and, and freaked out, and he walks over and he goes, "Look, Renee, forget everything you know about music and just follow Tav." <laughs> I don't know about that. And but. well, no, that's the that's that's the only way to approach it, man. That's the well, only well, you know way you're going to survive. You know, you know, it was and funny. It worked. You know, it was funny. One time, uh, there was a guy named Rocco De Rubis. I don't know if you met Rocco. He was from Bensonhurst. He came in town to play drums. And oh yeah, Rivers, I remember. Yeah, right? I remember Rocco. And and he was all into like this, the you know the swing era stuff, which would actually hadn't come into vogue till like you know like another ten fifteen years. But right. you know there was a band called Freddie Bell and the Bell Boys that were kind of a you know stuff like that, right? So he goes to um, Alex and Tav. They were over at Kathy B's house on Barone Street, and right. and, and and Rock goes to him. He goes, "Hey, you guys do any swing?" And Alex goes, "No." We're hillbillies. <laughs> That's funny. Um, so, so yeah, you know that that idea of uh, it doesn't. The singer is the only thing, or whoever is leading the the uh, the piece of music. That's the only thing. It's not important to be right because what you're gonna, as a bass player or a piano player, you're gonna enforce this form on a singer who's already lost that thread that you know there's there's no there's no there there you, you're you're all sunk you know your only hope is to 
just be where the singer is. You know, another thing he said to me is like after a performance uh, uh, where, you know, things had gone a bit haywire uh, with, uh, you know, one of the, one of the uh, participants, I was saying, well, you know, yeah, that was bad. I said, but, but, you know, we were good. He looked at me and goes, what are you talking about? We were good. And I said, well, you know, we played well. He goes, man, if the, if the guy, if the leader isn't good, we can't be good. Because it's not possible. And I was like, okay, I guess you're right. Okay, I see that. You have to tell the 688 story. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, yeah, 688 in, uh, in Atlanta you're talking about. Oh, yes. Okay. So just jumping ahead here, I'm on the road with the Panther Burns. This was actually the first the first uh, trip I went on the road ever with any band, and and this was the following summer. So I played with Panther Burns, started playing with them in May, and then this is like maybe July. And the Panther Burns have been hired to uh, open for the Clash on three or four of their southeastern dates. You know, we're playing like uh, Vanderbilt, uh, Knoxville, somewhere else. I can't remember. And then we had some club dates around it. So this is towards, this might be the last date of the, of the whole trip. And we're playing, uh, we're playing at the 688 Club in, in, in Atlanta. And it's full house and the Panther Burns are, are up there. And, you know, we uh, get a big introduction. Tav hits the stage and he hits his, plays a chord on his guitar and realizes that he's in open tuning and he really wants to be in standard tuning. So we're, I think the band is already playing at this point. No, maybe we're not playing. So then Tav starts uh, retuning his guitar. This is, of course, before the days of, of tuners or any of that. So he's, he's retuning by ear through the PA system. It's just coming out loud as can be. And it's, it's, this is before the first tune. It's before it's the first tune. Yeah, right when the guy gave him the big intro. Yeah, the big intro, and then we're up there. And, uh, and, and uh, you know, it's a bit of a struggle. And... It goes on for a while, and Alex and I are looking at each other, and then we start giggling, and we start really laughing because it just goes on for so long. It's like I heard else? one of y'all was rolling up a cigarette too. Oh, uh, that could very well could him, be him and Alex both used to smoke those roll your own those cigarettes. Drum I cigarettes. That, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we roll takes takes breaks in between tunes to roll a cigarette. <laughs> but uh, we're we're cracking up, and the the owner of the club comes over and stands on the side of the the. Uh, the stage and he starts yelling at us he goes you think this is funny <laughs> and we're now we're really loud we're going yeah no, this, don't what, you <laughs> don't uh, how is this not funny oh, uh, you know you know i gotta say this about tav uh in the spirit of uh of, of uh you know um i don't know whatever spirit <laughs> some kind of spirit <laughs> but when Alex, when um, when Tab's show worked, okay, like I've seen many a time, people would go, "What the hell is this?" But when Tab's show worked, it had a th- an other dimensional stop time kind of feeling. Oh, absolutely! I, I saw him one time at the Aten- Antenna Club in Memphis, and another right. time here at Tipitina's when his show worked. Right, and I was like. I don't know how I never saw this. You know what I mean? But like, oh, and you would see, and, and you know, like, but the problem was he was taking a tremendous chance every time he walked on stage. Oh, yeah. Because a lot of times the show didn't work. We all were taking a chance. <laughs> yeah. A lot of chances yeah, were taken. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, you know, but, living but, on the edge. Living on the edge, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah but the sh- when the sh- when his show works, it's there's nothing like it you've ever there's seen. A, there's a lot of drama in the Panther <laughs> Burns uh, performance, you know. It's, well, Alex would say something about, he'd say, like, you know, that music that you hear that. It seems like they might not, not only will, may they not, 
will they possibly not make it to the end of the song they may not, they might not make it to the end of the measure <laughs> you know that that was that was so interesting you know that was so compelling to alex and you know it's that's an aesthetic that he transmitted to to a lot of people including me you know it's like there's something really beautiful in that kind of fractured uh uh you know it's a very fragile yeah yeah uh, yeah. And it was always lo- he was always looking for those moments when he recorded records too. Yes, which was a little uh, new to me. Yeah, you know, to to approach a recording session in that fashion. In fact, the the first song I ever recorded with Alex, uh, I thought we were doing a run through. Uh huh. <laughs> no one knew it, including the horn players who were right. reading your charts. Right. Right. And we finished the tune, and Alex just said, "Everybody good with that?" <laughs> <laughs> did he have the Did he have the horn players isolated? Um, so. Yeah, we had a, we had all was, three of them. But he kept it. He didn't, he that was didn't change a thing. Yeah, that yeah. was his strategy. See, because the last sessions I did with him, he put the horns in the drum booth. He took the drummer out of there, put it in the room, put the horns in the drum booth, so they were isolated. Because goes, they played it too goes, good. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was like that. So if we don't like what they play, we don't have to use it. You yeah, know, absolutely. But it was like that. You know, so so but, uh, so so then you know went out and played all these dates with Panther Burns and Alex and I got got real tight and you know came back and we'd we'd uh, you know he was w- still working like at the Asplen Tree Cutting Company. You know, like Eddie B. I don't know? know how. Look, I don't know how he. This is something. I I, I did that one day. Eddie talked me into doing that one. I go right. one day is all <laughs> most human beings can stand at doing that. Especially if you have a hangover and you're putting, uh, you know, tree limbs into a wood chipper. Into the chipper. Yeah, that is yeah. the weather. It's like you know Auschwitz or something. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's like I'll tell you what you want to know. Please. It's very. Da- it's deadly work. It's. Yeah. I, I always tell people. There's no part of being on a tree cutting crew that's not deadly. So when so he, he worked, he was Alex was the ground man, and Eddie was the Eddie B was the cutter, and then oh. Paul Crotwell was the third man. He was the foreman. He'd been and but uh, so the, those three guys would go out and work. So and then Alex would come home, and I would meet him at his house. At you know at, at on Barrett. Did you Street. have to climb that tree? For a while, there was a tree by his house. You would have to climb the tree because the, the the house, the guy that had the house, had this dog. Oh, the dog would chase you down. Yeah, yeah I remember you, jumping you, on top of the car to, to get a to yeah, avoid you would, the dog. It, you know, so to get to his place, you would have to climb that china ball tree to get to the <laughs> second floor there to get in his house. Oh uh, yeah, I never did that, but I, I, I do remember having to take refuge on the top of that old Desoto <laughs> or whatever it does, whatever it was, when that dog came out and wanted to rip me to shreds. And, and Alex would hear the dog bark, and he'd look out the window and go, "Oh, hold on, I'll come get you." <laughs> you shoo the dog away <laughs> but uh yeah that dog i remember that dog yeah man that dog is vicious but uh what was i say uh so uh so yeah wait, I'd, I'd go meet him at his house and like te- a- uh, alex didn't even have a television set at this time but he had like a stanley's farfisa organ and a set of drums from stanley and guitar amp and about like 20 of his favorite records and a uh thrift store um, record player and you know we'd, he'd play favorite records of his 20 for me certain things oh you got to hear this track you know and then we'd play instruments we'd switch around like playing along to the record and then playing just you know without the record and just just goofing around man just you know two kids it felt like just, i have some of that stuff on tape of us yeah, doing that it was so fun man we'd spend yeah. like you know a few hours until it was time to go to bed and then i'd leave and he'd you know i'd go back to where i was living and and uh so then one day i i come over and he goes hey uh 
Eddie didn't show up, and so he got fired. So I got promoted to the to be the cutter. Do you oh. want to you want to come take my place as the ground man? And I was like, well, that sounds interesting. Sure, why not? Oh. <laughs> and I think the two of us lasted about two months together on that job. We were cutting uh, uh, trees off of high tension power lines along the river in Laplace, and so Alex now had to get up in the cherry picker and uh, get close to these power lines uh, to cut the limbs off of them. And you get so close that, you know, your ear would brush yeah. against a, like a, the leaf of a lit up uh, branch and you'd, you know, you could feel that buzz. In you could light a cigarette off of it. Yeah, it was crazy, man. And, uh, you know, I was down there chipping all that stuff. And, and, you know, the thing about the chipper is it's like in, in, uh, jaws when they the guy says you can't hold the ropes with a closed hand because the shark will take it too fast you won't be able to let go quick enough well it's 110 if, if, if 110 will hold you if it's 220 it'll throw you but 110 that's why they always tell you when you touch a wire live wire which you always go do it with the back of your hand right because right. it'll hold you well I'm, I'm just talking about the the chipper itself it's <laughs> like when you're when you're bringing a branch in you can't hold You have to have open palm because when that chipper grabs it, it's going to yank it so fast, it will yank you in behind it if oh, you yeah, have yeah, a closed yeah. hand on it. Yeah. So anyway, we, that's, that's an interesting story. And actually, Alex says uh, at one point he said, yeah, I think, I think that time on that crew poisoned our relationship <laughs> because it was, it was too many. Like, Crotwell was crazy. He'd get up there and just cut like mad you know generate so much material that the two of us would have to be chipping and it was just you know it would have been better had we not done that but but uh so then then we st we got fired from that gig and then we wound up playing at papa joe's through uh dawson braden um, uh, you know i had one of y'all's old song lists he gave me he was so proud of that from gig. the scores yes. yeah he, he was proud of that gig and i thought how do you how do you uh what do you think about that gig and he goes it, it's wonderful he goes because Nobody knows who you are, and they come in, and either you're good or you're not good. So it's instant, um, you know, um, gratification or, 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 or you know, uh, like yeah, yeah, uh, you know, you know what I mean? Yeah, validation. Yeah. Val that's what I wanted. Okay. The, word, the val. It was instant validation, you know. And and so he he actually was, and, and you know, he told me that somebody from the Beach Boys that he knew. Um, yeah, I think Actually, uh, what was his name uh, uh, Bruce Johnson. Yeah, so name? walked in and he yelled in the mic, "Hey, Bruce!" And then you know, Bruce didn't know who he was. Right, you know? right. Hey, you want to? Did you ever? Did he ever tell you the story about getting sent out for groceries? By Charlie's Man yeah, Charles yeah, Manson. Charles, he yes. didn't know. Yeah. Yes. Oh yeah. Should we tell that one? Um, sure. That's a good story. <laughs> yeah, he um, he was apparently on on tour, uh, and it was out in California, and and he was. At the Beach Boys' house, and they well, he was good friends with Dennis because the because the box tops had done a lot of uh, a lot of dates with the Beach Boys, and and Alex and Dennis had become good friends, right? So and and, and so these women were that were at the house sent him out for groceries, and he said, um, you know, okay, so he comes back. This is what he told me. Anyway, he came back, and they said, oh, Charlie's not gonna like this. Uh, you forgot the milk, and and he didn't know what the hell that meant. So this is what he told me. He says that later on, he was in England on tour in England. And he saw in a paper machine Manson murders. He goes like, "Holy shit, that's that guy that was yeah. at the house." Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the way Alex 
told me the story. He said he was going to the store to get some cigarettes and stuff. And as he's leaving, he goes, hey, is any, I'm going to get cigarettes. Anybody else need anything? And Charlie's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Here's Here, get all this. And he's looking at a big grocery list. And Alex is like, well, no, man. <laughs> I'm not going grocery shopping for you. I wondered if you wanted any, like a six-pack of beer or something. So he didn't get it. And yeah, and then, but then, he, then later on in that same visit, they were playing music and and uh you know people were playing guitars and and uh charlie manson said to alex uh you play the drums and alex goes uh no man i don't i don't play the drums and charlie looks at him real real uh seriously and goes you can play the drums (laughs) 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 alex said he got a little freaked out i was like well i don't know i just said i don't but (laughs) you know you know then he he kind of decamped after that because he said i got a bad vibe about those people (laughs) you know that guy was perceptive yes very perceptive that that guy was floating around you know uh, another friend of mine that we actually did some work with a guy named ben keith that alex and me did some work with gave me a cassette Okay, called Pedal Steel Player. Love and Hate Knuckles. Okay, and it was called it. it, it no, 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 no. I'm sorry. The other side, which is called Get, get Him in One Big Area. That was the name of, the, and it was like a, a dissertation by Charles Manson how to end. You know, like they were going to put all the, all the different ethnic groups in a stadium and throw a bunch of weapons in there and let them kill each other. Uh, yeah, and I, I didn't know counter. what this was. And I, I, I listened. And years later, I was, I go, holy shit, this is a tape of Charles Manson. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what was going on in that area, but they were all around these people. You yeah, know? yeah. Oh, yeah. No, he thought he thought of himself as a musician. He was looking to get a record deal. You know. That's, right. that's how you know. Imagine you know history could have been different if if Telly Ma- somebody would have signed Charles had just Manson. Come through, you know, if, t- if Terry Melcher had just signed the Manson family, you, you know, know, he might have been good. Uh, I, don't know, I don't know. We'll see. You know, you never know how how an artist is going to develop over time with the right uh, the right nurturing <laughs> artistic direction. That's right. So uh, so yeah. Then then we we played at Papa Joe's. Then one day I think we turned around to the drummer and said. Mm, did that tune slow down? And he goes, that's it. And he slammed the drumsticks down. He goes, I quit. And he walks over to the bar. And then shortly later, the, uh, after that, the, the bartender manager goes, uh, you guys have to leave because it's his gig. So <laughs> <laughs> you're, in fact, he didn't quit. You guys are fired. So we, 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 uh, we go back to, to, to the Honeycomb hideout on Barrack Street, and Alex goes to the payphone in the middle of Esplanade, because he also didn't have a telephone at the time, and he calls up Frank Riley, whose number he'd gotten from uh, like, uh, uh, Will Rigby, who had stopped in, you know, the drummer from the DBs, great drummer, shout out to Will Rigby. Uh, so yeah, he'd he'd come in and he'd said it to Alex like yeah, if you want to ever go do any dates on the road, you know, here's call this guy and you know he could probably hook you up. So Alex calls Frank Ryle and he goes, hey man, uh, you know, you think you could uh, book me some shows in, in in the Northeast in New York? And that's how we wound up going and doing that first thing. That was the first tour tour you did with Joey Torres. Yes, Joey Torres playing drums and and we we went up there and played uh, you know Danceteria and and. Uh, maybe like cbgb and uh, a few a few dates that on, on that trip and then played like chapel hill in north carolina you know and cat's cradle uh, a bunch of things like that and then but before we actually went on that trip we had a a gig in memphis to do and you know we were still at this time playing panther burn gigs we'd go up tav was back in in memphis and alex and i would drive up to memphis and and do panther burn gigs at the antenna club and and uh on 
and then Alex was, was starting to, to book his own shows, and we did a Memphis and May gig uh, with another drummer from up there, Richard Roseborough, did a great job. Uh, Memphis Horns were there, sat in, played a few tunes with us. That was pretty cool. Um, but then uh, there had been a uh, William Eggleston opening uh, the great color art photographer had had been commissioned by Vanity Fair, I believe, to photograph Graceland. So then they had an opening of of all these beautiful color prints, and we, we Alex was invited to the reception. He brought me and and uh, Finest Newburn's trio is playing, and we're looking around all these beautiful photographs, and I'm, I'm going, God, man, listen to that drummer. He plays really good. And he goes, oh, yeah, he does play really good. I was like, we should go talk to that guy on the break. And so I took a break, and we went over and talked to Doug Garrison. Uh, <laughs> that was you. <laughs> you, know, you know where I used to see Doug? I used to play at, um, what's that place? Ho- Huey's. Yeah, Huey's. I used oh, to play way back there. Huey's on Sundays. They, they had a Sunday night gig where if you were on the road, you could play on a Sunday night there. And they paid a, a guarantee, which the guy was so proud of because it was a – reasonable amount of money unless you know to a certain extent but he was so proud of the fact that's what he paid everybody including robert that cray was? Uh, that was uh, alex's old drummer right that was thomas boggs right, original right. or one of the original box tops right drummers. right and 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 he was so proud that he paid robert cray the same amount of money after he'd won the wc handy award or something yeah, right but, but but the thing was we, we would go there the gig was sunday night and he Doug would always be getting off the jazz gig. Uh, he would. You, you you had a jazz gig there, right? I was a jazzer back then. Yeah, yeah. Including and we, the night that you guys heard yeah. me, I don't. I was I was playing bebop yeah. tunes with brushes. I don't. See, yeah. But y'all thought it would work. Well, you just had you, you had that kind of you know Vodakovich like uh, fluidity to your playing. You know, it just seemed like you know you you were just playing with such a a deft touch and you know whatever it was that we heard you play i knew that you could play anything i could just tell or i figured you could try to serve the song yeah man yeah and so we went and talked to you and i think alex might have said something like hey man you want to go out and work real hard and make no money (laughs) (laughs) and you and you went yeah that sounds good sure why not not? (laughs) an interesting thing i remember about that particular job uh Finus had a handler, this this uh, lawyer named Irving Saki, who, uh-huh. who took him around. And for some reason, they were late to the gig that night. And it was, you know, Brooks Museum, kind of a high-profile gig. We might have even been wearing tuxes and stuff. Okay. And um, they came up, and they were really nervous, like, well, you guys got to start playing. It's time. You know, he said, well, <laughs> you know, it's a trio, and the piano player's not here. <laughs> and they said, we don't care. Play some music. So I looked at Errol, the bass player, and I said, you know, let's play body and soul or you know, some ballad. We played ballads for 15 minutes. With just, just drums, drums and, and bass. bass. Uh, you know, I saw um, Max Roach do that. Oh, really? Yeah, at the Jazz Fest. No, no, he had no. He did have a sax player, but he had no, there was nobody playing any chords. Right, just a bass player and drummer and a sax player. Oh, cool. So you know, if we had had a sax player, you'd have been good. Yeah, but we didn't. No. <laughs> so it was half notes on the bass, and, and brushes on drum. So uh, so at that point we uh, Doug you w- then we we rehearsed together for a, uh, a a gig in Memphis and played that gig and at the uh, Antenna Club, at the right? Antenna Club yes and uh, that that went so well that uh, you know after that New York trip 
that we did without you, we decided, well, let's see if we can uh, get Doug on full time. And so that led to us, you and, and, and uh, me backing up Alex for, I don't know, four years or something. And you continued on with him for another six years or something. Yeah, I think the the last thing I did was probably that record that was released in 95. But I was playing with the Iguanas at that point. Right. Since 93. Right. But continued to work with him a little bit as alongside his other drummer, Richard Dworkin, who came on right. to do most of the road stuff when I... I would play the New Orleans gigs and Richard would play the road stuff because I was on the road with you guys a lot. Right. Right. So, so the, But on that New York trip, that we the first one we did, we ran into... Uh, this photographer that worked for Patrick Maté of New Rose Records. And while we were there, uh, the guy got Patrick on the phone and, and you know, put, a, put Alex on, and they talked, and, you know, Alex had a deal to make records for, uh, for New Rose, at, at the, you know, after that conversation. So that, that wound up being feudalist start. So, uh, surf music. Surf. People didn't get the joke, you know, right? But... Uh, Right, exactly. Surf music with an E. Um, uh, so, so yeah, we went in and had Jim Spake uh, and Noki Taylor and Fred Ford playing as the horn section. Great and, horn section right there. Yeah, yeah, it's very, very deep. Uh, an interesting thing, I remember when, when he was setting up that first record date, we were uh, somewhere, Missouri or someplace, at a Denny's. Uh -huh. Alex wrote his contract on a napkin. Yeah. <laughs> For Patrick <laughs> about retaining U.S. rights and stuff. Uh -huh, right, I was right. pretty impressed because that was my first time on the road with you guys, or even knowing you guys. Right, it's like wow, I just wrote that contract on a napkin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and we would we would uh, you know be I mean this is in the days certainly b before any kind of GPS. I mean we wouldn't even have maps a lot of times. You know, you'd have like a map that would take you to a certain. Uh, you know, certain proximity to your your gig, and I remember stopping in a a uh, coffee shop and getting a a, a a newspaper and looking up the club, the name of the looking up the listing of where you're playing to figure out where it is because you don't have paperwork on anything, you know, and, uh, and then asking someone, well, how do you get to this place, and then explaining to you the directions to the club from where you are. Uh, and you know, so we'd we'd get to towns and and have might have called someone up and made arrangements, or might just be looking around to see you know what kind souls would uh, you know offer us accommodations. Pantherburn yeah. style. Pantherburn style. Yeah, oh. yeah. And stay with a lot of cool people. I remember we stayed with like Joe Sasfi one time. You know, who mm -hmm. uh, you know, a great writer. Played with all kind of you know. I mean, stayed with all kind of wild people. Stayed with the Cramps one time out in L.A. You know, right. slept on the Cramps floor. Good times. I got the sofa. You got the sofa. Yeah. Well, you were the new guy. We were trying to be <laughs> trying to break you in easy. You know? <laughs> like we always brought our sleeping bags with us. Oh, and we traveled in a, a '73 LeSabre uh, that he Alex had gotten his payment. That brown car. That brown LeSabre. I remember that thing. That Alex had gotten in trade from Stanley Atkins as payment for producing a session on on Stanley, but it came with with uh, uh, with 
a bad transmission. So when we first started, when we were going to go on the road, it was like, well, we needed a car. And Alex goes, well, I have that car, but doesn't, you know, needs a new transmission. So we borrowed $400 from my grandmother and got a new <laughs> transmission for that car. And, uh, you know, we paid well, that, it back. Those are the days where you could pay $400 for a transmission. No kidding. Yeah. Was that two grand dollars? You've got to sell a kidney to get one out. Yeah. But, uh, so we would, we would ride and the, for for a, maybe a year or so the radio didn't work in the car so we would just sit in silence it also didn't have a driver's side window when alex by the time we had you on the road doug we had bought a window but when we were first driving up from new orleans to do those panther burn gigs alex had a, a motorcycle jacket and whoever was driving would put the motorcycle jacket on because it would be so cold, <laughs> you know, with the wind blowing on you through that, that open window. And, you know, so we, it was a piecemeal operation. Now, once we got a little bit of money together, we sprung for a window, you know. Damn. Got that got that window tightened up, so you know. You See could, these kids nowadays; they don't know about anything about paying dues. <laughs> and then and then you know got a little bit more ambitious. You know, I thought, well, I wonder what why that radio doesn't work. You know, I got into there, started looking around, realized, oh, okay, the speaker is totally bad. And went to Radio Shack, bought a speaker, hooked it up. Then we had a radio. God, that was such a luxury. We had AM radio. We could listen to the Road Gang. Road Gang all oh, night. Man. Yeah. What? Wait, what was the other guy? He's come on at four o'clock in the morning. Uh, the the weird guy. He's talk about. Art space. Bell. Oh yeah. I think this is before Art Bell though. Pre-Art it's Bell. this is yes, it's pre Art Bell, wow. but the Road Gang was, you know, a country music Dave the way Nemo. it used to was. Dave Nemo, yes. Yep. God, that shit was so great. And and man, they get those those old timers uh programs on and Alex was just in his element, man. You know, Alex had such an encyclopedic knowledge of all this music, man, and he had a memory. That's one thing. Like, if I don't play a tune for a while, I'll forget it, man. It's it escapes me. But Alex can somebody can mention a song to Alex that he he knew 20 years ago and pull up pull out his guitar and play it exactly right with all the you know weird chord changes that aren't in the standard version that he learned off the record you know you, you know what you know what i saw him do one time um i was in the studio one time and and i said you know one of my favorite songs is all the things you are by jerome kern sure and he sat down and picked out the changes and anybody that knows music knows that's pretty complicated it's, yeah, it's got, got several yeah. three different key changes and right figured out all the changes just sat there and worked it all out and then he goes you know what this is he goes um this is autumn by vivaldi there you go yeah <laughs> you know he the guy the guy you know the thing about him was he would out of nowhere you'd think what the hell is this guy why is he famous and then he'd do something out of nowhere that would totally astound you you know what i mean oh, <laughs> Say, man. <"Well>, that's why <laughs> look he, yeah. he's one of the few people i've i've run into to people like this you know on a handful of occasions where somebody sitting in a room with you can pick up a shitty guitar and start playing and singing a song and it just immediately changes the the barometric pressure in the room to where you're going Oh fuck! This is for real, man. You're the presence of greatness. Yes, this is not. This isn't somebody playing a song. This is someone who is just totally present and you know so so transcendental. Yeah, and Alex had that quality, man. That's you know that's why people loved Alex because even though he was somewhat unassuming he possessed that that ability to to transcend it well i notice. guess i ought to tell the, the letter story then huh well i don't know <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of amusing it's, you know? it's funny yeah, he, yeah, yeah. He, um i had this band called the blue vipers and he um wanted to get up and sing the letter with us right we were you know like a rockabilly band so he gets up and we did some strange version of this song you know it was like i don't know what the heck it was but 
then he's um i'm walking around the crowd and i hear some guy you know i really used to like that song and that guy really fucked it up bad he would have thought that was hilarious no no he would have loved that yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. he would have he would have definitely been tickled yeah. but you know I, I just the the idea that alex is asking to to perform the letter with you sounds a bit apocryphal from for me you know it's, uh, it sounds but you know there you go just you know what was his calling card you know well it's his go-to uh, okay you know, all right yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I can see that yeah. you know that this reminds me that in in that that film that uh, our friend from memphis is making on alex right now there's the trailers up on youtube and there's this one one little clip where this journalist it's like right after a gig or something backstage at some festival it looks like and this journalist goes um, Alex, are you trying to be puckish on stage? And uh, you see, Alex is the wheels turn real fast, and he's about to re- rebut it or, or, or engage the guy to refute it. But then you can see he the, the switch clicks in his mind, and he just goes, he goes, uh, yeah, <laughs> sure, <laughs> sure. Yeah, yeah, you know, <laughs> like you're you're beneath me even engaging. If that's what you think, then sure. You yeah. know, the, the, the interesting dichotomy of the man was though he despised when people sort of like you know looked at him as a some sort of a yes. historical figure but at the same time when it was at, at the right moments he embraced it like um one of the last times i spoke to him he had done some festival gig in illinois or somewhere and some girl asked him he called me up to tell me this and yeah. some girl asked him for his autograph and he said no he just said no and so she said and of course you know what she said she says my cousin is a publicist and you're through in show business around here and he just thought he was just laughing he thought that was totally hilarious now another time we were we were riding around somewhere and he goes why is everybody always talk about frank sinatra i think i'm every bit as good as frank sinatra and i go alex i go you've had your moments on vinyl i'm a fan <laughs> you know so there was times you know it was just like you know but that's the thing about him was every time you thought you had him pegged he'd He'd throw the curve. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, pretty humble all in all. But uh, he certainly didn't suffer journalists who presumed to know stuff about him when he knew that they were very shallow in in their research. Oh, oh, oh! He put put it put you in your place pretty quickly. I think we have to mention the the, the Alex Chilton uh, dark sense of humor. Oh yeah, well, sure. <laughs> briefly there was a there was a guy. Okay, we were. Um, I was up in Arkansas, right? And um, the, uh, there was a guy that was in this band that was like, you know, he had like about four or five wives and, you know, dozens of girlfriends. And he was crying about, um, you know, his his last girlfriend broke up with him that he was running around on his fourth wife with or some kind of thing like that. And he goes, Jay, he goes, I'm only one drink away from putting that 38 in my mouth. And, and, and Alice goes, you should have said, pull over. There's a bar. I'll buy. <laughs> I'll buy. I'm buying. <laughs> you know? God, he was so funny. Yeah, you know, hanging out with Alex, like that's the thing. If 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 you were in the circle, there was no place better. It was just so funny because every you're taking a piss out of everybody else around you, you know, and it's just like the warmest, coziest spot, you know, as long as you're on the inside, you know. <laughs> that's the thing. It took me a while to realize is like if you're there, it might just be a matter of time before you're one of those other people. <laughs> Your time will come too, son. But uh, but God, it sure was fun when you're when when you're in there and it was all good humor you know there was there's nobody that that made you feel more special or or more engaged you know 
Well, now that that's that's another thing you have to say about him. Like he never, he never thought anyone was a lesser no. mortal than himself. No matter who you were, if you were a, a, a derelict on the street, he would talk to you and he would know your name within a certain amount, a very short amount of time. He would know your name. Start asking he, you your birthday. He, he would you ask what your, your birthday. Your he would, he would ask you something about your family history, and he would always remember it too. Right, when yes. he'd see that person, he would know the person's name, and I know something about him. You right. know? You remember, remember what your card stuff. was. Yeah, that's crazy, man. <laughs> the book. The book, right? The ephemeris. I, I was a three of clubs. Yes, yes, I was, I was uh, the king of clubs. <laughs> right, <laughs> and then so, and his whole thing with with the the astrology was not just what your th- what your th- thing was, is what the intersection of your thing with his. You know, he'd say because uh, you know whatever his card was or whatever his you know his his whole uh, you know layout. Because that was what the aspect of, of that he was really interested in is the intersectionality of it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah he asked me uh, when I first met him. You were the right card, too? No, I'm talking about uh, he asked me what year I was born. Oh, oh. You know, I'm a Taurus, but he said, what year? And I told him, and he said, uh, ah, the year of the monkey. He said, I'm the year of the tiger. The monkey likes to ride the tiger's back and mock him. Yes. <laughs> I remember well, him saying wait, that so much. I'm a monkey, too. Well, I'm comfortable now. <laughs> you know, let's remember the monkey is an enthusiastic achiever, but is easily frustrated. Okay. <laughs> All right. I like it. I'll remember that in my later years. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. So, God, we sure do miss Alex, you know. It's been... It, I... Uh, it's interesting though. Like I, I ran into him on the street uh, about like six weeks before he passed away, and I hadn't seen him for for a year or so before that. You know, and mine and Alex's relationship, you know, it's it it's, it varied at times. You know, he was always happy to see me, but it, it seems like I was always able to say something during the course of the conversation that would remind him of why he didn't like me, <laughs> or, or why he things that he didn't like about me, and then he'd sour on it. But you know, he always. He always was warm the next time. And, and on this particular occasion, uh, I was coming out of a gig on Frenchman Street, and he's just walking down the street and, you know, surprised to run into each other. And we, I swear we stood out in the street with, I was, you know, with the, all my equipment there. We talked for like 45 minutes, man, just caught up on all the shit. And he was, he was really happy and really positive and, and uh, really sweet and smiling and joking and, and during the course of that conversation, I'm saying, yeah, you can't pick up a Rolling Stone without seeing you guys name checked. And, and he's now he's wincing harder. And I, and I go, I know you don't want to hear about this. He goes, no, I don't. I don't want to hear about you shaking his head. No, I don't want to. I said, you, you hate when anybody talks about, you know, something about you in the press. He goes, no, you. I was like, I should know better. He goes, yes, Renee. <laughs> so, you, again, very funny. You know, I have to say, the day he passed, okay, we were doing a session at the time. We were working on some recording. And that day, we were off that day, and I went out for a walk, and it, it, I'll never forget because it was St. Patrick's Day, and I ran into my one of my neighbors. There's a, a field of clover out by uh, the bayou here, and she had two four-leaf clovers, wow. not one, but two, and I had never actually seen one in my life, and she gave me one, and I got home, and that's when my bass player called me, and I go, what? I, and I actually wasn't didn't believe it at first. I called yeah. several people because you know there's some pretty sick people out there. And I thought I it says is that is it really true? And but I but there I was. I, I had you know St. Patty's Day and I, I had a four leaf clover and I don't know, it seemed like a kind of a 
you know, uh, if he was going to go out, you know, th- that seemed like, you know, an appropriate way for him because he brought such good fortune into my life, well, I must say, you know. I don't know. I, I, I wish I wish he was still here. <laughs> oh, we all we all we all do. We all do. And and, and but you know, um, uh, like I said, he was um, above and beyond what the man was was a southern gentleman. Oh yeah, oh yeah, and and, and yeah, very erudite. You know, it's, Alex was a, a total autodidact. You know, he didn't. He you know dropped out of school to go on the road with with uh, the box tops, but you know, read constantly. Had all these all these uh, varied interests and and retained all this stuff you know it could talk about a million different subjects um yeah he's an impressive and character. he wasn't he couldn't understand why people thought sinatra was so impressive <laughs> well you know i actually like uh, that that came up the subject of sinatra came up early on and me hanging around i think we were listening to like uh strangers in the night or something and i was bemoaning you know how it was kind of schlocky you know and and he 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 looks at me and goes man i think sinatra just got better and better <laughs> You know, he said the same thing about Elvis. You know, like if you bring it, it's like, oh yeah, Elvis was so great. It's got you know, Elvis just got better and better, man. In like the late period, yeah. <laughs> fat and dying Elvis, yeah. Suspicious Minds played it many times. Yeah, well, even Alex. even like uh, uh, that that last big hit that Elvis had, uh, "You Were Always on My Mind." Yeah. He loved that. You it's know, a good song. It's a great song. You know, when when we were playing with the scores on at Papa Joe's, we would. Uh, finish that set and we'd often walk back to our cars because you know we'd park at meters and stuff you know and but so we'd go by this hustler bar the roundup that he liked to go to because they had a great jukebox and uh it was a you know weird hustler bar which super kinky so that was just fun to be in you know (laughs) on environment alex Alex like to you know i have to say something about that place real quick go ahead um he uh, he wanted to go in there one time. I go, Alex, why do you want to go in this place? I mean, it's a bunch full of transvestites and weird-looking people. And he goes, because they have the first Ricky Skaggs album on the jukebox. Yeah. And I go, okay, all right. So he goes over to the jukebox. We get a round of drinks. He goes over to the jukebox, and they had taken it off the jukebox. Okay, he goes, uh-huh. we have to leave now. And we have to, I can't. I don't want to say over the air what he yelled at these yeah. people, but I was surprised we didn't get set upon. Wow. <laughs> you know, he was, oh, he was so angry. Really? <laughs> you know, they, in, on the jukebox at, at the Roundup, they had uh, the Willie Nelson version, which I guess Willie wrote it, you know. So, yeah, we we would, he would play selected cuts uh, on the, uh, the, the roundup. So, you know, another, another interesting aspect, he turned me on to the roundup and I brought people there for years after that. And they were always, uh, n- n- uh, never less than impressed. Brought Mark Sandman there one time for morphine. And he goes, ah, oh, this is a cool place. Today. <laughs> like, I know, it's weird, right? <laughs> it was sort of, there's a place in, in Lexington, Kentucky. I don't know if it's still there called LMNOP. That was like that in that place was, transvestites cowboys rednecks bikers i mean it was a true cross section <laughs> right, of right. humanity it was it would make your head spin to see who was in that bar you know and and, and, and the jukebox and it oh the jukebox was great but but the thing was it was like no you thought this place is, must erupt into like uncontrollable violence but it was quite the opposite everybody right. was so magnetically you know polar opposites right. of everyone they everybody just kind of went in there and looked at each other right. it was like just, they just wanted to go see what 
you know, was going on with the human race. I don't know. Right. You know it was I, a laboratory. Right. You know? I, I always think about those kind of scenes as like the watering hole in Africa. You know? Like <laughs> if you go to a watering hole, there's all these different animals, you know, that as long as there's not a tiger there, then none of them give a shit about who else is there. You know, they don't even pay attention to each other hardly. You know, they yeah. see each other like, yeah, you know, we're all just doing this thing here. Yeah. You're thirsty too. Yeah. So, so, uh, so getting back to uh, you on the road with, with Alex, Doug. Uh, so, you know, we, we did uh, many, many tours of the U.S. You know, we did some camping tours where we partially camped. We did tours of, uh, of Europe where we were robbed. I, I can't say for sure we were robbed, but, well, we definitely we were robbed by somebody. I, 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 we always contended that we were, it was an inside, inside job, job that we, uh, we won't mention any names. But I was there when, when our tour manager made a very strangely timed stop at a uh, a, a phone gas booth. station what was it a phone booth? well at a gas station in germany and he brought his flight case uh you know hard sides uh briefcase that he carried all the money in that one time if you recall him he had a set of handcuffs on the thing and, and he would sometimes handcuff that case to like something permanent like a uh, a radiator or a pipe or something one time we walked backstage and he had it handcuffed to a, a coffee maker <laughs> just like a portable <laughs> coffee pot it was like well that's not going to do much but just to give you an insight on this tour manager so the guy we stop and he he not even to get gas he brings that fucking case in with him and i go in to like get a candy bar or something and i witness him put the case down in the phone booth inside of the the gas station then make a frustrated phone call then come out and and yell at the german speaking german proprietors of the place in english loud english have a fight with him and i'm just watching this like what the fuck are you doing we already thought the guy was a fucking weirdo for all this strange stuff he would do and uh and then he storms out and i just follow him out and then about an hour later he goes where's the case oh wait where's the case and uh he goes oh i must have left it there i'm like well i now that you mentioned i did see you bring it in there you know, how could you bring a case in, put it down on the floor, full of money, full of money, and then walk out? You know, and it just the more we thought about it, the more it seemed like okay, this guy's been calling his compatriot tour manager, who's on on the road with another tour uh, every few days, and keeping in contact with the guy, and then suddenly he leaves, the, he does this drop of the suitcase in this place, and it was a whole mess, man. That wound up blowing the whole tour up because then we. We had to, and also, of course, our passports were in that case. So we had to then go to like a police station or something on uh, the, embassy, the border embassy in Amsterdam, yeah. in Amsterdam, and get new passports issued for for the two of us. And uh, then then we we made an executive move and started collecting all the money ourselves <laughs> and bypassing the tour manager and and uh, and then the the booking agency showed up a couple of days later and basically stole the van and the equipment left us sitting in a, 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 a hotel lobby in Utrecht, Holland. <laughs> That's right. With nothing but our suitcases. Oh, and, and they even had our equipment. And then they called us and said, well, look, uh, we split, we're taking the, the, all the shit back to uh, England. Uh, we left your guitars in such and such a place. I don't know. Some, it was a few blocks away. I can't even recall, but they, they, they still had our stuff and they just offloaded it and stuck it there and we had to go get it. And then we finished the rest of that tour by train. Oh, uh, 
And uh, that was all the money that we saw from that tour was the... the what well, we got the, the last week. The, the last yeah. week, yeah, collecting. Well, crazy, man, crazy, crazy times. So they basically jacked the tip jar on you. Yeah, yeah, but it was like, you know, several thousand dollars. It was, <laughs> was like all, all the tour jar. money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's uh, it it always exciting. So it's never a dull moment. Memorable, shall we say. Yes, yes. And we, But we finished the tour by train, and all the dates were good, and, you know, we yeah, came back. It was actually much easier to do it by train. Well, yeah, and then that guy was out of the way who was always a pain in the ass. Um, mm. So, and, and then I, I played with the band for some time, I don't know, maybe six months after that, and then, uh, then, then I left the band, and you continued to play for, for years. Now, it's funny. Uh, I recently saw this, this videotape of us playing at um, Maxwell's in Hoboken, right, yeah. this gig. And it's a whole it's a well-done video. And first of all, it's hard for me to listen to myself play in those days because my concept was so different than what it is now. And there's a lot of shit that I do that I just it, it, it makes me queasy. <laughs> It's just like, oh, Renee, just we shut up for Christ's sake, you know, <laughs> Jesus Christ, you know, and, and Alex never said don't do that. I mean, he always encouraged us. Like, in, in fact, when we were learning all that big star stuff, if you recall, he'd say, okay, here's a song we should we should know because you know fans are going to want to want to hear it, and we go like, he go here, I'll, I'll teach it to you. And so he'd teach it to us, and then we'd say, well, maybe we should listen to the record. And he'd go, no, don't don't listen to the record. I don't want you to. Just, yeah. <laughs> I just want to teach you the song, play what you think. <laughs> yeah, that, that was interesting. You always did that. And I, I, frankly, I didn't know who Big Star was when right. I joined the band. And like I mentioned, I was kind of a jazzer at that point. I had sort of dropped out from listening to anything but, you know, fundamental bebop music, you know, piano trios and stuff. Right. For several years. And so when he contacted me to play with him, uh, I actually knew his father. His father was a piano player. Sydney. The, yeah, Sydney and I worked some gigs together with a big band in West Memphis, of all places. Crazy, man. And uh, I was living in Memphis, but there was a little, uh, like a cafeteria in West Memphis. We'd go over and 20 guys would go over there and play for five bucks a piece. Right. But it was all really cool, older guys. And right. Sydney was one of the guys that kind of took me under his wing. He was really had some great jokes, man. Yeah. So we would hang out on the breaks, uh, me and him and this guy, Johnny Davis, um, a trumpet player who was also just a funny guy. It's like a comic. He would always change the titles of all the songs to something. <laughs> I can't actually say they're right. too vulgar. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Fan talk. <laughs> uh, but I think that's one thing that, that impressed Alex was that it actually uh, – called up jim spake after y'all offered me that tour and jim said oh yeah alex is really cool you should do that yeah <laughs> so all i knew was it was related to sydney right you know? right so i think that's that kind of uh that kind of helped my position that i didn't really you know not only was i not starstruck by alex i kind of didn't know who he was right 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 well yeah and that's that's how you you had the best chance of that's connecting one of the reasons he liked you yeah, yeah. Well, you know, there's there's something there's a, a way that uh, when you when you get a certain amount of fame, you see people will look at you like people that don't know you, but they recognize you and they think they should know you or they there's 
they look at you like they feel like they know you they look at you like prey you know there's a look they get in their eyes and it's not fun it's gross and people that have had it a lot are super sensitive to it you know they can tell when someone's looking at them objective or you know objectifying them and it turns them right off, you know, and that'll that, you know, people that treated Alex like that, he, he was just as likely to turn and go, why don't you suck my dick or, so, you know, something really vulgar, something really offensive about it. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas if you didn't come on to him like that, he would talk about everything and, you know, totally uh, be super warm to you. Yeah. Uh, one of the nicest guys I ever knew. Yeah, 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 for sure he could be. And and also, you know, uh so anyway, getting back to my story of of uh the the Maxwell's gig. So in this videotape, there's no water on stage and I'm I'm getting getting uh parched and 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 I start I'm, you can see me telling Alex off mic is like, "Can we get some water up here?" And he goes, "I don't know. I don't I don't see a a waitress." And I was like, "Well, maybe we could get somebody to to help us out." And he goes, well, "Why don't you ask him?" So I get on the mic and I start talking. And when I heard this, I was like, oh, fuck. I swear I sound exactly like Alex. It sounds like I'm doing my best impression and really good impression of Alex. And I got the chills when I heard this earlier this year. I was like, oh, fuck, man. I was like, God, you know, that was the best thing that could have happened. You know, I was, I was losing myself in, in the, the uh, orbit of Alex Shelton at that <laughs> time. I really was. I, was. I feel like I was losing my identity. So it was, it was quite healthy for me to... Uh, to have some separation there worked out well, but you continued to play for, for years and, and, and made a bunch of records and, uh, yeah, up to about 95, I think, and played many tours of Europe and, and tons of gigs. And by that time it was actually like when we first started going out, uh, there might be a club owner that was super into big star into Alex and would think, Oh, this is going to be a great show and book us. And nobody would heart, you know, it'd be like, 10 guys in army jackets with no girlfriends, you know, that used to be my, my joke about, you know, who, who our crowd was going to be, you know? And so, but then by the, you know, after a few years, you know, the, the, uh, the, the bangles covered of, uh, September girls had come out and, you know, it was all kind of rolling. There was a bit of a resurgence and you guys actually had a lot of played a lot of big shows and, and, you know, really well attended, uh, yeah. you know, events. Yeah, and he had that uh, TV theme as well. Uh, what was the, you know what he called? You know what he called it? That seventy dollars song. <laughs> <laughs> it was the seventy the theme from that seventy show? Yeah, yeah, yeah seventy yeah. show. Yeah. yeah. What was this tune? In the streets. In the streets. Yeah, yeah. 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 So, so yeah. Jay, we we first you first worked with Alex when when you were recording uh, Nuclear Hayride. Your, well, that your... was the first. Actually, not the Blue Vipers recorded a demo. Oh. Um, and and the way he we did it was he he walked in. He goes, we were kind of tuning up and 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 we were going to warm. He goes, no, no, don't play anything. He goes, okay. And the guy turned on the tape machine. He goes, play. And we and we actually did um, four songs and maybe a take or two. And that was it. And I I said, wow. And 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 uh, that was the actual yeah. That was the actual rec- first thing we ever did. Oh, okay. Man. Now, was Bobby Brennan the bass player? Yes, that he, what he a was. fucking bass player Bobby Brennan was, man. Jesus you know, his Christ. son now lives here. His son, you really? know, yeah, he's gone. Bobby's gone and his wife is gone. But his son, Bobby Brennan the, f- the third, okay. lives, lives here in New Orleans now and he's a drummer. And oh, okay. He's studying at UNO, and he, oh, I play some him. gigs with him sometimes. I mean, I remember seeing Bobby Brennan the first time. He was playing guitar, and, and it might have been like at the Tulane Rat or something, Rat Skeller or something. Mm-hmm. And he was playing guitar, and I thought, oh, okay, you know, he was singing. 
And then, then I heard, oh, he's going to go out on the road with this rockabilly band as a, as a slap bass player. I'm like, what? What? Well, he got hijacked by Levi Dexter, Levi Dexter in, yeah, in yeah. New York City. He went to play with some, the, um, the Clements brothers and, and Nicky in, in, in New York, and they played a gig at Max's Kansas City. And somehow he got hijacked by Levi Dexter and wound up in England, and he'd never, he, he'd never played upright right, bass. Right. And he, can't, he was a damn good – he, he was – look, this guy could pick up anything. And, and, and on top of that, he became a Mercedes mechanic. Uh-huh. I mean, look, if you, you can be a, an A mechanic, right, is one thing. But they said there's an A mechanic and then a Mercedes mechanic. Okay. And, and, and so, I mean, he was one of these people. He, you know, he, I don't know what he, – he could just do stuff yeah, out of nowhere. Yeah, minded. Well, he, yeah. he wound up becoming an incredible uh, slap bass player. I mean, so rhythmic, man, so strong. Uh, I was just totally blown away when I saw him play. I was like, oh, fuck, man, this guy's a fucking monster. He had the bionic hand. And you guys had a great band, man. The Blue Vipers were, were so smoking, man. That was that was a great time. So, okay, so that's the, the that's the first time you, when you worked with Alex. And, you know, uh, Alex had the, the cramps pedigree, you know, and, and certainly a, a very super thorough and deep knowledge of, of rockabilly music and, you know, all southern roots music and and so that's how he got involved with with Stanley and 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 you know working on all that stuff and and then mm-hmm. then so years later right we're talking about Nightshade Studios a couple blocks away you guys uh, you and Dave Clements and Joey Torres right right recorded Nuclear Hayride and Alex produced it and I was of course in that's tow, right playing you know, two handed piano I, was I forgot about yeah, that that's, that was a, yeah. it's a, a funny story that that Dave still Dave Clements still tells of of uh, like we were we we're playing piano on some tune. And uh, I was playing the left hand. Alex was playing the right hand. And, and right before the tape was starting to roll, Alex turns to me and he goes, cover me. <laughs> and I wasn't sure what he was talking about. And so we play through the whole tune. I'm playing the left hand. He's playing the right hand. And the, the tune ends, and he does a big, long gliss, a glissando from the, from the high keys all the way down. And then I had to play the, to I had the, to play the root. root at the bottom of it. <laughs> That's what he meant by cover me. Good thing you hit it. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. I figured it out on the halfway down. I was like, okay, this, yeah. Now I know. I mean, I knew what to do. If he hadn't said that, I would have done it anyhow. But that's the 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 instruction uh, made sense at that point. So that was a, a cool record, and, and that that came out really well. And you know, yeah. Alex, you know, Alex's style of production. Uh, a lot of times he'd just lay back. You know, he'd, he'd sit on lay on the sofa, and and like I, rem- I remember a uh, another session I was doing with him years later. Uh, I think it was another Stanley session. And uh, it was at Stoney's studio. Yeah, I remember that. I was just going to ask you, didn't we do a record? Oh yeah, you were on Stanley, that. Se- yeah. You were on that that session too. That's right. And Alex played, and and uh, and so we 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 did all the the tracks, and Stoney's mixing it, and Alex is laying on the on the sofa, and I'm like, Alex, don't you want to get involved in this? He goes, Oh, he's doing a good job. <laughs> you he know, had it's the like pr- producer's chair. He had the producer's couch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He'd sit back there and roll joints, you know, and and just you know listen and you know if something needed to be said, he'd say it. But generally, he'd he'd, he'd wait he'd, till the till it was being mixed. Yeah, he he would yeah you know and he'd, he'd have some some uh, pertinent but you know he wasn't one of these guys that had to be oh let me show you how it, let's see let's do it like this and you know it's just like he's you, doing you know, fine. You know what the tra- <laughs> you know what the tragedy of that is. Um, uh, you see, the last the, the stuff we were working on right before he passed, he was actually going to produce this record. I mean, I was making demos for him, and he mm-hmm. was like, you know, listening to the songs. Going, that one's okay, no, no, no. You know, he was, he was picking out the songs. And he said he was talking to me how, about how he wanted me to sing the songs. Oh, okay. And he was there when we set up the studio, 
and it was he was actually going to produce it like you know i mean he was going to be real involved hands on, in the whole thing you know and it type. was like and i thought man this is going to be this is going to be an, a totally unique experience you know and uh so uh, that, that was but he it didn't as alex was unpredictable as he was yeah you know he that was his yeah he, he zigged farewell. when we, we zigged when he thought he was gonna zag yeah yeah um you know and that 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 brings up another thing about alex is uh you know by the by the look the outward appearance or even by his own his, his own characterization he would say you know why work if you don't have to you know <laughs> But, exactly. but then if you look back at his, at his his work history, so much stuff, so much output, so much product, you know, like a lot of stuff just kind of f fell into his lap. It wasn't that he was pushing. It wasn't that he was out there working it, you know, it just he had a certain uh, magnetic uh, quality to, you know, his professionalism, his ability. And, you know, people saw that as as intriguing and attractive and you know, by just saying yes to things, you know, like that, that, uh, that Cubist blues record, uh, that he with made Alan with, Vega. with Alan Vega. Yeah. 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 It's so great, man. And that's the thing they did in like three days or something like a long weekend. That's, that's a great, I love that record, yeah. man. You know, that, that, and that reminds me that the first time I ever heard of Alan Vega, we were, it was on that first Panther burn, uh, trip opening for the clash which has some great stories. I don't know if we'll get to today, but so we, we had driven all night long. Cause I'm sure we had a blowout in the, in the, uh, the, you know, 65 Thunderbird that we were traveling in Taff Falco machine. That was a great looking car. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's looked, a shame looked, it wasn't mechanically looked, sound. Looked great. You know? Yeah. But you know, when you, when you buy used tires, you, you, you can't, you can't have a lot <laughs> were of confidence. They, recaps? they might've been retreads. Yeah. 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 That <laughs> made those. sense. Um, but but we so we finally get to this place that we're staying somebody's house and it's early in the morning and we're all exhausted but you know we're still kind of wound up wired up and uh, Alex is filing through the their records which he would always do you get to your house and you start looking to see what cool records you had you know because that would tell him a lot about you and and also you know things he would be interested in hearing so he goes hey Renee I mean this is when he he's taking me under his wing he's like hey renee you ever hear this record and he shows me frankie teardrop by suicide and i was like no and he goes oh you you're not ready for this man wait till you hear this so he puts it on it's like 7 a.m you know <laughs> listening to, to uh alan vega go through uh the whole the whole sad story of frankie teardrop baby in the crib i don't know i can't remember exactly <laughs> <laughs> and I'm, I'm looking at my eyes are big as saucers and he's Alex is laughing he's like ah I knew this you would love this <laughs> I'm like wow that's something else so yeah Alex was, Alex was a huge fan of the esoteric and loved to share it you know and so it was cool that he got to uh, got to make that record with Alan Vega it's one of the greats you know I actually bought um, the first time I ever heard Big Star I actually bought the third what's, what was the, that one that one that never officially came out right third third sister, sister whatever yeah. yeah yeah i bought it at a flea market and um the guy goes to me he goes alex chilton thanks you and i thought to myself for what i go he's probably not getting paid for this record <laughs> so so anyway i called him up and i said alex i got this record but i'd never heard big star like you you know i'd never heard and i said Alex, I got this star, this record by you called Third or whatever it was called. Sister yeah, yeah. And he just went dark. 
You know what I mean? I could tell, you know, he was yeah. not happy. And I was, oh, well, I, I changed the subject. Right, right. Well, but yeah, that, that, his attitude about that music for a long time was, that was maybe before, um, you know, they just, people decided they liked it again. They loved it. You love me again. You now don't like me now. You love me again. You know, it was like that. And at that time, he had a terrible, you know, if you mentioned that stuff, you know, he, he, he just would shut down, you know. I think the third record, you know, the first two records are so different from that. They're very polished and a real group effort. And by the third record, I think it was just him and Jody, wasn't it? Yeah. Or, yeah actually, and Richard Dickinson. plays drums on a lot of that stuff, That's too. true. And it was sort of a self-destructive, he had a self-destructive thing. The most interesting of the three, in, in a way, you know, the, the, the two other records were, um, I, I thought, you know, songwriting, uh, you know, uh, workshops of, of, you know, show that showed, you know, unique, uh, you know, abilities, you know, but, but th- that one was, was a, was just a piece of art, you know, the, regarded as the, everyone's favorite. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Yeah, you know, it's, it takes you somewhere, not sure where, but it does take you somewhere. You know? Yeah. You know, I think even though when, when, when we were first meeting him that record that was only like five years before that that third record was made although i was so young at the time it felt like you know five years was an eternity for me now it seems like you know a blink of an eye but even at even that close to it i think alex i got the impression that alex felt like that was another person that was another era yeah, that yeah, was another yeah. identity he didn't really identify with it anymore you know it was yeah. not it wasn't part of like when he came to new orleans and you know it's really the whole rebuilding the whole bootstrap operation of of him remaking himself in in his was own. leaving that behind well that was part of it yeah it's yeah. like you know that was that was another day and that's not what i'm into you know i'll i'll do it because people want to hear it but really i'm interested in you know the uh you know r&b soul well, music blues you know what's uh, you know what's interesting about all that music if you listen to the first one, what's that song, My Baby, When My Baby's Beside Me? If right. you listen, that was the last place you heard the Box Tops voice. Huh. You know, if you listen to that record, he, he called that voice. But after that, he never used that voice again. And and uh, uh, maybe that's where he left the the, the, Al, the Box Tops, Alex Chilton. Okay. And, and, that, and, and everybody was expecting him to do something else. He was still considered to be some kind of a pop commodity or a commercial commodity and and maybe he the industry had ex- expectations or people had expectations about him and he wasn't sure he wanted to fulfill them right and well, you know, he would he enjoyed actually doing those oldie shows where he would go and do yeah that was that was later in life tops. later in life yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, I did a couple of gigs box tops gigs with him and interestingly he never used the box tops voice yeah it's no, it didn't. It, it didn't. It, you know, as, as far as I know, it didn't exist anymore. As a matter of fact, wasn't didn't somebody actually create a, bo- a phony box tops band, a oh, manager yeah. that, oh, that sure, owned yeah. that name or something like oh, that? Yeah. And no, he had they, a singer that sounded like Alex used to sound like, and everything right, like that. Yeah, they but, had. But I never heard him use that use that voice ever. You know, again, you know, at the time he actually sang with the Blue Vipers. Um, he actually sort of alluded to that voice. Yeah, but he did. And, and you know that the funny thing. I don't know if I'm hallucinating, but I was in this club one time uptown, and I is there an outtake? Does an outtake of the letter exist? I don't know. Because I swear, maybe I'm hallucinating, but I thought I heard a different take of it where his real voice kind of peaked out a little bit. Hmm. You know what I mean? And, and he was using the box stops voice, but then his actual voice kind of snuck out there. It, it, it might, maybe it was on one of those wires 
services, those wire okay. mu- wire in musics, and 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 I I I, 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 I maybe it was a, an out of body spiritual experience, but I swear I heard that. Well, you know, I I do recall that there was a guy that would periodically hire Alex to do these uh, to re-record those things. So they would. It was maybe that's what it was. So they would, and he would go up, and I can't remember the guy's name, but he would put together a studio band and you know totally redo the song and get alex to do it again so it was a way to get around the mechanical you know the master ownership you know it's oh, like it, yeah. right you know there was two the, the talking about the oldie shows that he loved doing that he he liked um freddie boom boom cat oh, yeah. in fact he had a yes. picture of him in his house yes and um i asked him about uh, you know some of the people and i said oh <laughs> and it was like uh yeah and i asked him about um you know tommy james and he goes tommy james he was all mobbed up. And I, and right not long after that, I was listening to a late night radio program. It was Tommy James. He's like, my new book, Tommy James, The Mob and Roulette Records. <laughs> yeah. You know? And, yeah. But um, the, the uh, I, I, I lost my train of right. thought. Well, but, you know, what I was thinking about, like, as far as the, the box tops voice, I remember Alex talking about, like, that subject. He said, mm-hmm. you know, when I was a kid and Dan Penn or, you know, yeah. He said sometimes Dan would would like tell me how to sing every single line of the, of the song. That's where aeroplane came said, from. And yeah. he said if I didn't do it, he would keep me there until I did it. And he said eventually I would just acquiesce. I'd just give in, you know, because I would get so exhausted. I'd just get so browbeaten. I would have to do it. So, you know, that wasn't necessarily by choice that he was doing any of that. That was somebody else's. That was Dan Penn's vision. It, so yeah, I think that that contributed to his disillusionment with that period you know it's like well this isn't me i'm being I'm being forced to do something i'm not comfortable with and you know i guess that was kind of a, a recurring theme you know he, he, he didn't like it the first time it happened and he became more sensitized to it as time went on you know yeah by the time we started playing with him he was completely i'm going to do this my way or nothing yes and some people liked it some people didn't like it right he didn't give a fuck Either way. Yes. Not, that wasn't the important part. Well, you know, a, another little clip from this movie that, our, that the fellow in Memphis is making is uh, Alex talking directly to the camera, and he goes, you know, people have been telling me that I'm wrong for so long, and uh, it turns out I think I was actually pretty right <laughs> about a lot of stuff. <laughs> so he, you know, he felt pretty gratified that in spite of people going, no, Alex, you know, you should be doing this. No, he's like, you know, I don't think I should. And then in the end, he's like, no, nah, I think I was right. <laughs> yeah, that's David Leonard, by the way. David Leonard, yes. Shout out to David Leonard doing a wonderful hey, film. Well, uh, yeah. this may be like a, a good place to uh, to wind it up here. This feels like it's been... Uh, been very a stroll down down the stroll memory down memory lane of, yeah i don't i don't feel sick at my stomach you the, know the memory labyrinth more because a lot of times when i get into all this it's so i was so young when all this stuff happened and it's very emotionally charged for me and a lot of times i wind up coming out of one of them just going Ugh, i feel a bit ill you know it's just it dredges up so many emotions but you know uh, maybe maybe time is softening all this you know i just i like recounting a lot of this stuff so i don't forget it well, you know, they, they, they say that, like, that's, that's one of the things, you know, as long as people are, are remembering you and talking about you, you know, then you're not really gone, you know, they're, it's true. because you're, you're still living in their hearts. And, uh, Absolutely. You know, so it's, 
he's certainly someone deserving of, of that longevity, that type of longevity. Okay, well, uh, thank you guys so much for getting together and doing this, man. I know a yeah. lot of people are going to get a kick out of this. You know, hopefully uh, we didn't upset anyone. You know, it's, uh, you shouldn't be upset at all. You should be entertained yes, and amused. Yes. yes. So anyway, uh, uh, as we like to say on the Troubled Men podcast, well, first of all, Doug Garrison and uh, Jay Benatti, thank you all so much for your time. Our pleasure. And uh, as we like to say on the Troubled Men podcast, uh, trouble never ends, but the struggle continues. <laughs> Good night. Amen. <laughs> <laughs>